as a new grad, everyone feels imposter syndrome, but eventually, you know, you, you learn more and gain more skills, become more confident in your abilities. That is Dr. Andrew Lee, and this is the Vin Foundation's Veterinary Pulse podcast. I'm Jordan Benchia, Executive Director of the Vin Foundation. Join me and our co-host and Vin Foundation board member, Dr. Matt Holland, as we talk with veterinary colleagues about critical topics and share stories. Stories that connect us as humans, as animals, as a veterinary community. This podcast is made possible by individuals like you who donate to the VIN Foundation. Thank you. Please check the episode notes for bios, links, and information mentioned. All right. Well, welcome, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, And I usually like to to tell the audience uh, how we met. And I think of all the guests we've ever had, um, Andrew and I go the, the furthest back. So we met back in 2013 at, at vet school orientation and then graduated together in 2017. And um, Andrew, can you tell us how you got to that vet school orientation? Yeah, so I, I guess me and my love for veterinary medicine go way back. Um, I grew up loving animals. Um, Saturday mornings, I would watch Animal Planet and Discovery Channel instead of watching cartoons. So I always have that love for nature and science. Um, So, you know, although I didn't know it fully when I was that young that I wanted to be a vet, um, but I always had that in the back of my mind. And then once I was old enough and begged and begged my mom every day for a dog, (laughs) Um, got denied a lot of times, um, was told I was very irresponsible for wanting a dog, but eventually I nagged her enough until she gave in. Um, and that dog, he was a miniature schnauzer named Lucky. Um, I was maybe, uh, like 10 when I got him. Um, but he was just the smartest, most loyal dog. Um, everyone probably says that about their own dogs, but um, yeah, he, he just taught me a lot about the human animal bond and, um, as far as like, you know, caring for animals go. And then it was like our relationship, um, that just really taught me and solidified my passion for becoming a veterinarian. Um, especially as he aged, uh, you know, schnauzers, they're not the healthiest of dogs. So, you know, learned about dental care, heart disease, uh, senior care. And that was just what really solidified me and pursuing veterinary medicine. Um, not to say I didn't have some deviations or other um, temptations along the way. Uh, when I was an undergrad, my brother was a pharmacist, and you know it was appealing for them to tell me to become a pharmacist. It's easy money versus veterinary school. You know, everyone hears how competitive it is and how difficult mm-hmm. it can be. Um, so originally, you know, I going into undergrad at UIC and Chicago. Um, I did do a pharmacy program. Okay. Uh, straight. So it was like a guaranteed, um, you know, you do well in undergrad, you'll get guaranteed admissions to the pharmacy program. Um, I got a little distracted, to say, <laughs> to say in a nice way. Um, but, you know, I wasn't focused on, on school, um, you know, going to undergrad. It's my first taste of freedom, um, first taste of alcohol. Um, 
so I, you know, my grades kind of faltered and I was kicked out of that pharmacy program, which, you know, thinking back on it, it was, you know, terrible at the time, but looking back on it, it was probably for the best because, you know, potentially I could have just went to pharmacy school if I stayed that track. Um, so picked my grades up eventually, uh, you know, picked my grades up after the first year, um, I didn't apply to vet school right away after undergrad, just because I didn't have a whole lot of veterinary experience. Um, so I worked for the first year in an animal hospital to get an experience. Then I applied. Um, I didn't get in then. So then I worked at an ER uh, for two years before getting into vet school. And then that was where Matt and I met. <laughs> and and yeah, I mean, I'm not just saying this. Um, I like, I've always thought of you as really smart because in our, when you and I would study first year, you were always the one teaching me. Like I was always a little bit behind and like trying to pick up the concepts and you were like, Oh, think about it this way. Think about it this way. So, uh, I'm, well, I'm glad you didn't apply right away. Cause then, yeah, yeah. What I, I, I agree. Like, yeah, that, that experience was definitely invaluable. Um, especially ER, like you just see so many cases and, you know, you learn technical skills, um, which are really important. Um, all the doctors there at the ER, they knew I was going to vet school and they would take the extra time to, to teach me things and explain things to me. So, you know, it definitely helps going into vet school um, that, you know, I, I did have somewhat of a leg up over a lot of the other students. And do you think lucky, like getting lucky helped the like family perception of veterinary school? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I guess it kind of boundaries on like the whole culture, you know, there aren't ma very many Asians in veterinary medicine. Um, so it, it's hard to know somebody to get into the field. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, growing up animals weren't a big part of our family. Um, uh, we had a dog, like we had a dog when I was a baby, um, you know, we couldn't take care of it. Um, and we gave it away. So it's like, you know, that's what we thought of dogs back then. Um, but we had Lucky. He became a much bigger part of our family. Um, I think, you know, we were more older, more in a stable place to have a dog at that time. Um, and, and for sure, it definitely, you know, for the whole family, not just me, it definitely um, taught us that dogs are a part of the family and, you know, kind of opened their eyes that, oh, being a veterinarian can be a respectable position. Um, just because in our culture, you know, most Asian people are pressured to be human doctors or pharmacists or along those lines. Mm. Do you think that's changing over time or is that like a pretty constant thing that you've seen? I, I hope it's changing. Um, definitely, you know, I've done some talks uh, to other Asian minorities and, you know, they do say, uh, how do they find experience? Um, and I, I just think from, you know, our, our perspective, if we can see more Asian vets in the community, um, I do think for like the older generations, it can become a more respectable position. Yeah. I, I mean, I would hope so. I think like, <clears throat> I think, uh, from what I've seen, like, and we've had some other guests on this podcast talk about the same thing that you're touching on with like cultural differences and like cultural, um, understandings of their profession that it, like once, you know, once somebody like you um, kind of like 
breaks the mold and does it, then it, it can like, I don't know, I, I guess like it can break the spell. Like it seems then like it can kind of trickle down and um, like, you know, you, your family still loves you. It's not like you've done something like horrible or unforgivable. It's just like not something that, you know, most people with your background do, but that doesn't mean that you can't. Right, exactly. Like definitely, at least our family definitely paves the way. Um, you know, my my brother has two little nephews and like I'm a veterinarian. So as they, they look up to me because of it. And I, I think that's good. Otherwise, you know, if there aren't, you know, many Asian veterinarians, then, um, you know, like the younger people, they don't have that role model figure. And, you know, being of the same culture definitely makes a difference. It makes it more relatable for them as well. That is so cute that your nephews look up to you for that. Um, I've got four nephews and they, yeah, they, <laughs> they give me, they ask me the same question that my colleagues ask me, like, are you ever going to be a real vet? Um, but <clears throat> it's, it's okay. Uh, I, I, I want to know. So like other people that might look up to you, um, I'm thinking of like pre-vets or people about to graduate. Like, what would you you know, what would you tell them or what do you know now that you wish you would have known um, before you graduated? Yeah, you know, I, growing up, um, it's not something I thought about much, uh, my culture being a disadvantage. Um, I just didn't look at it that way. But, you know, now that I am a vet, I'm a minority and I, I started, uh, some people found me on Instagram um, as a minority and wanted me to speak to different pre-vet minority clubs. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, speaking to them definitely hit me um, that, yeah, I guess, you know, I, I was, you know, somewhat at a disadvantage and had to, you know, overcome some uh, hurdles to become where I am now. And, you know, they, they do find it inspiring. Um, I had somebody talk to me about, um, you know, similar situation, you know, their, their parents want them to be a human doctor. Um, you know, they're worried about, you know, culturally how culturally how it's going to look to be a vet just because there aren't many of us mm -hmm. um as well as you know it is a big expectation to you know just go from one program to the other so you go to high school you do undergrad you go straight to vet school um you know i took two years in between um you know working as a vet assistant i was cleaning up poop and, and kennels which you know i'm sure isn't something you know, most, as, as Asian parents, they like to talk about their kids and how well they're doing. Um, it's not something that's, you know, something to brag about, essentially. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but I worked, I worked through it. Um, so, you know, for other people in the same situation, um, you know, I think you just, if it's really what you want to do, you just got to work through it um, to get where you want to be. So you graduated in 2017. And uh, what did you do after school? Uh, so first job, I worked at Banfield for a year, um, big corporate hospital. Um, and then I, after a year, I moved to the city um, where I worked at a private clinic for two years. And then now I'm at a different clinic in the city as well. Yeah, and that 
that second job in between is that's I think the the reason why I thought you'd be a good guest for the podcast is because you and I were just catching up having a phone call and you told me about all this stuff you learned um, in that second job that you like you wish you would have known beforehand and like stuff that you um, would hope that other vets don't experience. So yeah, like what, um, can you get into more of that? Like what you kind of some wisdom you gained? Yeah, I, I definitely feel like, I guess with each job, I definitely learned a lot. Um, because we kind of go through, you know, the first two. So the first one, sure. corporate setting, um, you know, it's very enticing straight out undergrad, uh, you know, the salary was way better than anyone else going to offer. Um, also, the benefits were way better than anyone else was going to offer. Um, so I took it for the first year. Um, you know, the danger with corporate practices is, you know, how the management's going to be, uh, what the management style is going to be, and, you know, what they take importance of. Um, and I, I definitely noticed that it was more about pet numbers. Um, so it was just more about numbers rather than pet care or even, um, you know, doctor's state of mind. Like, you know, they would just ask you to work these crazy hours, see all these cases, you know, without regard to, you know, what kind of cases you're seeing. Um, and it also came down to numbers. And uh, you know, I kind of knew it would be a short-term thing. Um, so after a year, I moved on to a um, uh, small animal privately owned practice in Chicago. Um, and, you know, I also, you know, I was only there for two years, but I, I learned a lot. Um, definitely positives and negatives. Um, you know, there, the, I, I did get a lot of autonomy. Um, I also had a lot of good technology to be able to definitely enhance my skills and push myself, myself and like do more. Um, you know, we had ultrasound, we had dental x-rays that I can definitely sharpen my skills with those things. Um, surgical, you know, we had advanced surgical stuff, so I could do more advanced surgical procedures, uh, which, you know, otherwise if I was still at the, the previous corporate setting, I probably would have never learned. Mm, yeah. Um, and it wasn't, it probably wasn't until the pandemic where things start to go the other direction. Um, you know, things were slow for a little bit, um, which, which was fine. Um, but then, you know, like most vets, things just, really, really picked up. Um, and, you know, that's where, you know, I definitely learned a lot and, you know, found the job a lot, became a lot more stressful. Um, so I think some important tips, uh, you know, definitely, you know, when you, especially right now, it's as a veterinarian, we have so many options. Um, you know, clinics right now, they're all desperate to hire, hire vets. So we definitely have to evaluate, you know, all of our options before making any decision. Um, but definitely, you know, and especially for new grad vets, I do worry for them just because of the COVID and what their learning experiences was, what their externship experiences were, um, you know, mentorship for them is going to be really big. So, you know, be explicit, just ask them, you know, what kind of mentorship they're going to provide in the beginning. Um, ask them what the hours are going to be like. Um, so what you don't want is, 
you know, as a new grad, um, everyone feels imposter syndrome. Um, so, you know, you guys aren't alone. Um, but eventually, you know, you, you learn more and gain more skills, become more confident in your abilities. But, um, you know, I, mentorship is huge. Ask them what they're going to do to, you know, give you the time and, and how to mentor you. Um, you don't want to end up in a situation where, you know, they say they're going to mentor you and then just throw you into the fire and expect you to just, you know, survive and, um, you know, have a good, you know, work-life balance. Um, so uh, that's going to be important. Um, you know, with my previous job, ultimate goal with my career is for clinic ownership. Um, so, you know, initially I, I looked up to, to my boss for, for guidance and mentorship. Um, but as time went on, you know, there are definitely some red flags there where, um, you know, I, I knew I wanted to run my own practice differently. Mm -hmm. Um, sure. Money is important for running a business. Um, no doubt about that. Um, but I, I do think that there's a fine line. Um, you, you can't just expect your associates to work as hard as you do or see all those extra cases when you know they're making a fraction of what you're making um and it's just it's just unfair and you know eventually you know it definitely was taken time i was working through my lunches i was staying late and um you know sure we get uh production bonuses um but you know it eventually just got to a point where it wasn't worth it to me um you know, there are other things during the pandemic, um, such as how, you know, COVID was being handled. Um, you know, there's just certain questionable practices um, where I felt weren't the safest for the staff. Um, you know, just because some people in the clinic were exposed and got sick to it doesn't mean that that one person is... Um, not re reliable or not liable to stick to the same rules as the, what you expect your staff to, to be safe. Yeah. Um, and you know, the election came up, which <laughs> was, um, definitely awkward. Um, you know, I feel like politics in general are not a good topic to talk about at work, especially when you have a diverse staff. Um, you know, especially this election, there are definitely wider political views um, than probably previous elections. So, you know, it's mm. something you should definitely be a little bit more susceptible to um, you know, or cognizant of before opening your mouth, um, which can definitely make certain employees feel very, very uncomfortable. Um, as, and then, um, you know, I think it's also important to treat all of your staff equally, you know, whether they're male or female, um, and, and talk to them with respect always. Um, I think that's, you know, very important as an owner, um, you know, regardless, um, you know, of what you're feeling that day, just, you know, you're looked up to, you're supposed to be the leader. Um, and, you know, you just have to keep things politically correct as, as, as much as you can. Um, everybody's human, but um, there are just certain things that should never come out of your mouth. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm thinking like, like what you just said at the end there, you know, treating males the same as females. Like I think for a lot of us that just goes without saying, like, of course 
that would be the environment at a clinic. But also we don't like, we don't really know that by just from interviewing or like spending a day there, it can be hard to see something like that in such a small amount of time. I wonder like, would you suggest, I don't even know if this is common practice, but you know, would you suggest that new grads talk with support staff in the clinics and like, you know, you know, have, have conversations outside the, the person that might hire them or the owner, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, um, definitely, I, I think you should try and ask for some private time with one of the other associates, um, just to kind of get an inside view of, of what things are like. And I, I think that's a really good idea. Um, and I think even now I, I've heard of people where they would even kind of do relief relief work for like a month before, you know, making a, a decision to really get a better idea about how things are run, mm-hmm. what the what the management is like. Um, and honestly, I think there's a fact, I don't know, you might know this better than I do, but most vets stay at their first job for what is it, like one or two years? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, so, I think it's. I think it's below two years. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely below two years. Um, so, you know, it's not common to find the first practice right away. Um, you know, especially now, you know, be smart about your contracts. I think that's going to be really big and take a lot of pressure off of you. If you find a practice that you're not fitting in well, um, that you're not limited by that contract. Um, so definitely, you know, I'm, I'm lucky we have a, a contract lawyer in the family to look over my contracts and read everything over um, to say what's fair, what's unfair. And and some of the things that they constantly bring up in every contract is that the non-compete. Um, I think mm-hmm. that gives a lot of people, that definitely gives a lot of people stress. If you sign a non-compete, um, you know, especially in Chicago, it's, you know, a non-compete of like five miles here, that's, a lot if you leave a job with a five mile non-compete you have to move um versus you know out in the suburbs you know five five miles it's probably not as bad um those things are negotiable and i definitely encourage you know vets looking for new jobs to negotiate those kind of things um you know a lot of contracts they'll say five miles but you know just just say you're not gonna take it unless they bring it down to two miles so that you know if you don't if you find that it's not a good fit for you, you're not stuck in this clinic that, you know, you're miserable at because of this non-compete. Um, and you do have the options to look outside of that. Yeah. Um, you, you are lucky to have a contract lawyer in the family. We've got the model employment contract, which is, mm-hmm. it's more of a like general starting place. And then to get into the specifics, you want to talk with like a human, but that's mm-hmm. a, that's a good place to start. Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And then the, the other thing that kept coming up in contract is, is, is like, as far as like arbitration. Um, and this is in most standard veterinary contracts. Like if you and your employer have some sort of dispute, uh, a lot of the st- standard contracts say that the employee, which is the vet, will have to pay for all legal fees. Um which is kind of shitty, um, you know, so it could be something small. Um, and then, 
your employer or your, you know, your boss will try to sue you for something tiny, you know, just a little blip in the contract. Um, that's something that's can be negotiated as well. Um, typically, you know, what, what I've been told was to switch it to the prevailing party shall pay, um, the mm. prevailing party shall be recuperated, recuperated for the legal fees, as opposed to, you know, the little guy always having to pay for everything. Um, you should be like anybody who's listening to this, you should send Andrew a check for all the free legal advice he's giving you. <laughs> yes. I'll send you guys my memo. <laughs> and well, and yeah, something you said earlier too, like to be explicit that I think that can go into a contract too. I mean, I don't know how, you know, how explicit or how detailed do you want to get in that? But, you know, I've heard like advice for new grads along the lines of, you know, I want to be, I want to be guaranteed that if, you know, for like a certain type of surgery. So if I'm doing a GDV that somebody will be there like supervising me and like, just, just things like that. Like as a new grad, if you know, there are certain things that will make you feel more comfortable in a work environment, then say in the interview and if it's appropriate, put it in the contract. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's big. Um, Banfield, my first job at corporate was nice because they, um, they had me shadow a doctor for three months before really starting to be on my own, which was nice. And I, I don't think, that a lot of practices will do that. Um, you know, maybe they'll give you a month, uh, but it's something definitely to talk about with your potential future employer. Like just say, Hey, like, you know, I want mentorship, um, for X amount of time before, you know, starting to see cases on your own. Yeah. Yeah. That that's big. And especially and we, you touched on it a couple of times, like with, with how favorable the market is for veterinarians versus mm-hmm. the people hiring veterinarians. This is the best time to ask for what you this, want. Yeah, yeah, this is the ideal time. A lot of clinics are very desperate for yeah. more vet staff. Um, yeah, there's, you know, there's a, you hear a ton of clinics where there's just long wait lists to be seen, long wait lists for surgery. So, um, we can definitely use that to our advantage as the little guy. All right. So something we were talking about a bit earlier, I am curious if you have any thoughts you'd like to share about the, I mean, I was going to say recent surge, but um, really it's been for a year or more uh, the violence against the Asian American community. Yes, this is something uh, I haven't personally been involved. Um, and I, I honestly feel like most of the news that I hear is like not in Chicago. Um, so I, I don't hear about it as often. Um, but definitely, you know, I think the biggest key factor here is spreading awareness. Um, you know, that's the only way to, you know, get the word out there like, hey, this is happening. Um, and then I think, you know, once there's more awareness, that's the first step as far as getting change. Um, so I, I think that the awareness, you know, is still lacking. Um, so, you know, I do try to share posts on Asian awareness, um, you know, when I see them, um, you know, it, it's just not as 
I think it's just like the awareness is lacking to really make any, any movement. Yeah, I think so too. I, I mean, I just, um, just a couple weeks ago learned about the Chinese massacre. And I remember like a year ago this time, I hadn't heard of the, <clears throat> of the Tulsa massacre um, against the black community there. And so like, yeah. Uh, and yes, those things happened a long time ago and we're talking about the present day awareness, but just the awareness that like, this really isn't a new thing and it's been happening for a while. And so when, when, um, when people say like, this is a big deal, we should be listening and not just, I mean, not just thinking that they're, um, you know, making a mountain out of a molehill. Right. Yeah. For sure. Uh, yeah. And I just, yeah, I, I just feel like the, and I, yeah, I just feel like the, even like the regular media attention, like I, I think this probably happens for, you know, any kind of, um, you know, crime against minorities. It just kind of gets washed out and that's unfortunate. Yeah, I agree. All right, Andrew, we are about out of time, but what would you tell uh, your veterinary student self or your pre-vet self, um, knowing what you know now? So there are going to be a lot of bumps in the road. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of moments where you just kind of pause and, you know, got to think about, are you really making the right decision? Um, but, you know, for me, I've definitely feel like I've overcome a lot of hurdles and um, I certainly don't have any regrets in, in the journey that I've made. Um, you know, as far as telling my pre-vet self, you know, there were a lot of moments where I had a lot of anxiety. Um, I think if I could just go back and tell myself it was worth it, then it probably would have released a lot of stress. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. It was great to talk with you. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Veterinary Pulse. Please check the episode notes for additional information referenced in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and share review. We welcome feedback and hope you will tune in again. You can find out more about the VIN Foundation through our website, vinfoundation.org, and our social media channels. Thank you for being here. Be well.